This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Started hearing those kind of stories about you know the cup of tea, and the chiropodist, and there was another story. Somebody was advised by his cloud worker to hold a mobile phone when he was talking to his voices, so that he wouldn't get too much attention in the street. The idea that you would cope with those kind of hallucinations and absorb them into your life was really interesting. And then somebody else saying um, he wouldn't have mental health problems if the voices weren't so nasty. Just all these kind of details really appealed to me as, as a novelist, kind of storyteller. And so I guess I guess my perspective would change before I'd even started writing the book. And so once I was writing the book, I was only interested in technical challenge of it and the language and making something that people would want to read, even though they were finding it difficult to read. How kind and caring are we as a society and as individuals to our homeless, to our mentally ill and to our outsiders? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. British novelist and short story writer John McGregor talks to me about his Impact award-winning novel, Even the Dogs, and his upcoming visit to Dublin for World on the Street, European Literature Night, this Thursday, the 15th of May. First we feel, wrote James Joyce, in the closing chapters of Finnegan's Wake, then we fall. This morning we celebrate 75 years of Finnegan's Wake, possibly one of the most misunderstood works of fiction ever written. And we're going to take a bit of a literary trip into the worlds of cyberpunk and cyber sociology and review William Gibson's iconic book, Neuromancer, a book which in 1984 remarkably predicted the World Wide Web and all the shady, gritty sides to online technologies. This is a show about time and perception, values and choice, prejudice and control. But first, 11 countries, 11 voices, 11 venues, word on the street, European Literature Night. John McGregor writes stark, simple, but deeply provocative reads. In 2012, this captivating British writer won the Impact Dublin Literary Award for his astonishingly humane and haunting novel, Even the Dogs. A rough, but deeply affecting read. It's one book that you will never forget. John's latest book, This Isn't the Sort of Thing That Happens to Someone Like You, is a collection of short stories and is quite a departure from his previous gritty novels. Today, John teaches creative writing at the University of Nottingham, where he edits the Curious Literary page, a literary journal in letters, which includes some great contributions from a number of well-known Irish writers, including Colin McCann and Roddy Doyle. Well, this coming Thursday, the British Council, the UK's international organisation for cultural relations and educational opportunities, is bringing John to Dublin to be the UK representative at Word on the Street, European Literature Night. It promises to be a great night of storytelling, with contemporary European writing read aloud by Irish celebrities and writers in atmospheric venues around the city centre. Incidentally, the Guardian newspaper recently named John as one of the top 10 writers to see live, along with Sebastian Barry and Jeanette Winterson. Well, I gave John a call over the weekend and we talked about his fond memories of Dublin. Let's take a listen. 
Dublin's always been a city I've loved coming to and I've always enjoyed coming there to, to work on my books and to talk about my books. But 2012 was a particularly good year to be there because, yeah, I won the, the Impact Dublin Literature Prize and a really big check. So that was that was a lot of fun. It was a really good evening, good few days in Dublin and obviously tremendous honour to win that prize, which is, I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's one of the more substantial literary prizes because of the way that it's put together and, you know, the way it's, it's nominated by libraries all over the world and it's got a huge range of works in translation and works from across the world are put forward for it. So it was a huge honour to win. And in terms of readership, how did winning the impact introduce you to new readers that you possibly wouldn't have got before? It's quite hard to judge. I mean, there wasn't a tremendous explosion of book sales, but I think because the prize is organised by libraries worldwide and particularly by the library service in Dublin, I certainly noticed that my library lending figures went up fairly dramatically, especially in Ireland, which was really exciting. Less exciting for the bank balance, but, you know, really great to know that the book was being read, particularly because it's quite a difficult book to promote. It's quite a tough read and it's not an immediately appealing subject matter. So it was really exciting that the book got the recognition that it did and, and, and gained a new readership. And even the dogs, it's particularly gritty in parts, very Mm -hmm. humbling and makes you look at life and the sad truths in life. It's so captivating in how you communicate the sad, harsh realities of life, the loneliness, the disintegration in life that's right next door that we forget about or choose to overlook. Yeah, while I was writing the book, I was so kind of immersed in that particular world and that particular landscape that I kind of lost sight of the difficulty of it and the harshness of it. You know, as people who are living that kind of exist, living in vulnerable housing or, or living on the street and living with addiction and, and living kind of very chaotic lives, they kind of don't spend their time worrying about what their life is like. They're just kind of getting on with the day-to-day reality. While I was writing the book, I found myself operating at that level. And so to me, there was a lot of life in the book and a lot of hope in the book and a lot of humour in a kind of dark way and it was only once I'd finished and I kind of looked back at it and then I started to see other people's reactions to it that I realised that I'd gone quite deep into this really quite dark place but I'm kind of happy about that you know kind of satisfied with it. And there's some very profound moments in the book that really universally capture the tragedies in life and the simple things in life also. Yeah I was doing the research talking to people who've lived with addiction and and talking to people who, who work professionally with you know people who are living on the margins there were these kind of key moments and key scenes that came across so there's one where somebody talks about having their or basically having their feet washed in a daycare center you know by a shropolist and i know and also having his hair cut by the a hairdresser in the day center. those being the only moments when somebody had touched him for, for years and and obviously the, the feet washing is a obvious biblical reference which was too good to pass up but just that idea of that you live life without being touched by anybody for, for months at a time was was very kind of affecting. And then one of the other ones that somebody told me was a drug that was saying that she knows she's making progress with somebody when she can get them to make themselves a cup of tea in the morning before they go out and buy drugs. Because drugs can so dominate, it has to be the first thing they do when they wake up. And once they think about making a cup of tea and kind of caring for themselves in that small way first, that's the first step. And, and that became a, quite a key image for me to kind of to use in, in, the, in the story. John, I'm wondering, did writing Even the Dogs, did it change the way you looked at the world? Because by reading the book, it certainly opens up a completely different window into life and humanity and the challenges that people face and the extraordinary things that happen in life. So I'm wondering, how did that shape your own life? You're a parent, you live a pretty normal life and have Mm -hmm. normal responsibilities. Did that affect it in any way or is that pushing it? I don't know. I, I think the thing is, one of the things that drove me to want to write 
the book in the first place was that I was already kind of moving in circles with people who were familiar with, with that world. So you know, my wife at the time was a social worker with homeless people and there's lots of friends, a homeless nurse and a, a GP who specialised in working with drug addicts and a priest. So it was territory that was familiar to me. I kept hearing these kind of bits and pieces of stories and connecting those stories with people that I would see on the street and doorways and stuff and became quite keen to write something about it and, and, and shied away from it for a long time because it, it's a landscape that can be quite cliched, drugs and poverty and, and all that kind of stuff. It's quite easy to write about it in a very cliched way and so I, I pulled back from it for a long time but it was when I started hearing those kind of stories about you know, like the cup of tea and the chiropodist and, and there was another story, somebody was advised by his mental health worker to hold a mobile phone when he was talking to his voices so that he wouldn't get too much attention in the street. The idea that you would cope with those kind of hallucinations and absorb them into your life was really interesting. And somebody else saying um, he wouldn't have mental health problems if the voices weren't so nasty. Just all these kind of details really appealed to me as, as a novelist, kind of storyteller. And so I guess I guess my perspective had changed before I'd even started writing the book. And so once I was writing the book, I was only interested in the technical challenge of it and, and the language and making something that people would want to read, even though they were finding it difficult to read. Were you surprised by what you came across? Because there are moments of dignity and grace and humility, despite mm-hmm. the harshness of life, despite mm-hmm. the grit. So did that shock you any way? Did it change you in any way? Did you feel that by our privileges in life that we're prejudiced in some ways and we only look at people with drug addictions and people who are homeless, that we look at them in very simplistic terms and we forget about the big picture? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things kind of became clear to me while I was researching and writing the book. And one of them was a kind of admiration of a kind of human resourcefulness and human capacity to survive. And just the sheer logistical challenge of living on the streets as a heroin addict and every day having to find 50, 100 pounds and go and buy the drugs and find somewhere to take the drugs and do that three or four or five times a day and find something to eat and find somewhere to sleep. It's a massive logistical challenge and it's a huge waste of human talent and, and resource on this but it it still somehow demonstrates that the people are quite incredible and, and, and can do incredible things there's a kind of weird kind of thwarted hope in that that i wanted to convey but the other thing was that actually on the one hand it is a terrible tragedy that people are living these kinds of lives side by side with people who are comfortable and well off it is a bit simplistic to kind of assume a kind of causation that you know it's not that some people are living at the bottom of the heap because other people are doing okay and it's not as simple as saying well if only the people who are doing okay didn't ignore the people in the doorways then everything would be all right because people have got into these difficult situations in very very complicated ways and life hasn't just happened to them people have made choices not that they've brought stuff on themselves but that they've got to that point in a very kind of complicated way and it's a huge challenge to help them get out of there again so i guess that was the other thing i didn't want it to feel like a campaigning hand-wringing narrative just wanted to show the complexity and the challenge and the dignity of these people's lives i guess so john on thursday the 15th of may word of the streets is taking place all over europe and what it means is we have european literature night and in 11 european countries 11 voices in 11 venues we're going to have a selection of readings from different european leaders and i know that you have been voted by the guardian as one of the top 10 readers you're going to be reading from even the docks and it's going to take place in kildare street can you talk to me a little bit about european literature night and why you want to to come to Dublin. I know the British Council were involved in bringing you over. Yes, 
So the British Council were in touch a few months ago and invited me to come and be part of the European Literature Night, which I, I was delighted to accept. Dublin's a place I love coming to, and it's a, it's a place that's always been very good to me and, and my work. And so I immediately I, I wanted to read from Even the Dogs because of that time I was here, that being such a focus. I'm going to do six 10-minute readings over the course of the evening, and there's going to be a number of different people reading work from all across Europe in different venues around Dublin. And so I guess the idea is that the audience kind of goes from one venue to the next. You know, I'm actually going to read a 10-minute piece from each chapter of Even the Dogs, so pretty much give a fairly comprehensive account of the whole book, which I'm really excited about, to have the chance to come back to Dublin and to do that. And most of the chapters in the book can be boiled down to these 10-minute sections. They lend themselves to being read pretty well, so hopefully it's going to be quite a, an experience for the audience if I can keep my voice up until the end of the evening. And I was curious why you weren't reading from this isn't the sort of thing that happens to somebody like you because there are a series of short stories but I suppose because you won the impact that's why you're reading from even the dogs. Is that the kind of the logic there? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that was the logic. This isn't the sort of thing that happens to someone like you who came out two years ago and I've done a lot of readings from it and really enjoyed doing those readings. You know, short stories are great to read because you can read the complete piece of work, which is really satisfying. But yeah, I just thought to come back to Dublin two years after the Impact Prize, it seemed to fit really nicely to read from Even the Dogs. Maybe this will be the last time I read from Even the Dogs, and that'll be a nice kind of point to, to leave it. And to have the opportunity to read effectively the whole book over the course of the evening is, is something I'm really looking forward to.
And that was British novelist and short story writer John McGregor talking to me about Word on the Street, European Literature Night, this coming Thursday, the 15th of May. John will be reading passages from his award-winning novel, Even the Dogs, in the reading room at the National Library of Ireland. Now, readings will be held every half an hour from 6.30pm to 9pm and will last about 15 minutes, allowing lovers of books time to wander and stroll from venue to venue. And there's some lovely creative spaces in this year's programme, including the Royal Irish Academy, St Anne's Church, the Mansion House and number 5 Leinster Street. And in case you're wondering what that haunting duet was in the background well it's the talented Hilary Han on violin and Max Ritter on piano the composition is called Mercy and all I can say is one word sublime okay coming up next deciphering James Joyce's most overlooked work of fiction Finnegan's Wake with philosopher and illustrator Thomas McNally Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 and you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you'd like to get in contact with the show or if you have some requests for your favourite authors to interview or books to review, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely. So drop me a line. OK, let's go a bit left field here and celebrate a very special literary anniversary. 75 years of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake with Irish philosopher, artist and illustrator Thomas McNally. For some, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake is the greatest literary wind-up in the history of Irish literature. For others, it's simply James Joyce's masterpiece. Well, this month celebrates 75 years of one of the most challenging and misunderstood books of Irish fiction. Beyond It and the Grasshopper is James Joyce's peculiar retelling of Aesop's ancient fable, The Ant and the Grasshopper. Joyce's version is presented in his last great work, Finnegan's Wake. Well, Irish philosopher and illustrator Thomas McNally has just launched a unique book of illustrations aimed at making Finnegan's Wake more accessible and engaging to a broad readership. Thomas came into studio earlier in the week and talked me through his unique creative response to Finnegan's Wake. I asked Thomas about the many challenges within the text, starting with the language. Once I got past the, kind of the difficulty of just the, the language that you encounter when you first open the book, you realise there's actually quite a lot there in terms of humour and uh, just a lot to enjoy. In particular, I came across a lot of fables that he... Um, well, there's a, quite a few scattered through the novel. They're a particularly good example of how humorous and how, how much you can enjoy reading Finning's Wake. And so as an artist then I just wanted to really illustrate one of those fables in the sense that it would um, be a way of kind of sharing that enjoyment with, with people. And what's interesting here is Thomas, this is an artistic response to a book. You're producing a book of illustrations on Finnegan's Wake, but you are bringing philosophy to this book. You describe yourself as a philosopher. Can you talk to me a bit about the meeting of philosophy and books? Sure. Yeah, I, I approached uh, Finnegan's Wake as a philosopher rather than a Joyce scholar, also as an artist. I mean, there are quite a few philosophical issues raised by Finnegan's Wake, particularly with Joyce's experiments with language. There's a, a famous quote from a portrait of the artist where he says, When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion, I shall try to fly by those nets. And that suggests that, um, well, obviously with nationality and religion, that he didn't want to be limited by his um, nationality or, or religion. But he also mentions language. And that for me was kind of difficult to understand what he was trying to say in that first novel about language as in some sense limiting him as an artist. And so even back then, he was equating artistic freedom with somehow overcoming language or modifying language for his artistic purposes. And so I saw Finnegan's Wake as like the culmination of that effort. And that for me was very interesting philosophically. 
And Thomas Finnegan's Wake was Joyce's final book. He died two years afterwards. Do you think what he brought to Finnegan's Wake was his lifetime as an artist, as a deep, rich thinker, as a writer, and a very much the philosophy of language that he brought into it? Now, I think there's a, a kind of a, more or less a consensus that the progress from Dubliners to Portrait to um, Ulysses is one of just getting better and better. As works of literature, as works of art, culmination is Ulysses, and that's a, a classic and often considered to be the best novel of the 20th century. Finnegan's Way kind of divided people and so for some people that wouldn't necessarily be the culmination of his efforts. For some people Ulysses was that and a lot of people believe that Finnegan's Wake was him wasting his talent and wasting his ability or his, his genius and that was kind of the majority view when he was first publishing fragments of it and when he first and when, even when his supporters read it and so I personally think that and I think this is a view that's become a bit more common after 75 years of it being around that it is a major achievement. It is probably his greatest achievement. It is the book that he wanted to be rem- remembered for. And I think that's justifiable too. I still think we're kind of trying to get to grips with the book because it is so difficult. It is probably the most difficult work of literature you can encounter. But I also don't want to stress that too much in the sense that, yes, that's the impression you get when you open it and you read it. But I also want to stress that there is so much there. There is so much humour. And this whole project of illustrating the book, it was motivated by that belief that a huge audience can enjoy this. And that hasn't been the case up, up until now, but I believe that when you take one fragment, which is what I've done in the in the book of illustrations, and when you just focus on that one fragment, which is, a, in my case, it's, it's a fable, and when you illustrate that, and you sort of immerse readers in that fable and in the images that I've put next to the fable, you see, in a more immediate sense, what's so great about the writing, I think, in the sense that what you see is the humour. Uh, if you read his language, if you read his text alongside the illustrations, you'll find that they're probably not as difficult as you kind of presumed they were. I mean, that reputation of being extremely difficult can sometimes put people off. And so this book of illustrations is supposed to kind of counteract that. And what is the essential key or pattern to understanding Finnegan's Wake? Because it's a very rough read. It's very complex. It's very dense. It assumes and demands a lot of the reader. I think you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that you're not going to ever get to the bottom of it. Uh, It can never treat it like another novel. The assumptions and the expectations we approach any novel with usually involve the kind of the assumption that if we understand the plot, if we know the motivation of the characters, then we have understood the novel and we can be we can just leave put it down. Then I think we have to just reconcile ourselves to the fact that with Finnegan's Wake that will never be the case. I was reading an interview by Fritz Sen, who's the director of the um, James Joyce Foundation in Zurich, and he was. He's been reading Finnegan's Wake for about 50 years. And even he says that that even now when he reads passages, he can't believe how lost he can be. And so, yeah, there is that. The point is that you'll never be done with it. And then again, I think once you reconcile yourself to that fact, you can enjoy it. You can just open up, even up a, a random page and read a paragraph and just enjoy his wordplay. And likewise, with this fable, it's taken out of the book, out of the novel. But just read that fable on its own and you can enjoy it. So really, it's about the pleasure and the struggle for engaging with such a challenging read. And it's also the maturity that you're bringing to it through the years. So it's a it's a book for a lifetime, really. Yeah, I wrote a philosophical essay along with the section of illustrations that sort of, that essay is also in the book. And what I say in that is that probably the only way in which you can consider yourself mastering the book is by just reading it and continuing to read it. You're not going to necessarily ever, you know, as I said, master the book by understanding what it means. The only way you can really speak of really mastering it is just to keep on reading it and keep on listening to how it sounds when, when you read it. That's where the enjoyment arises. And I think, yeah, if you, if you just keep doing that over over time, the language becomes, I wouldn't say it becomes more accessible, but you become attuned to what, he, what he's doing with language. And you also kind of put aside that whole assumption that it's just too difficult, that you can't do it. And you just kind of 
enjoy how it sounds and, and it's, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Now there's one thing I have to ask you Thomas when I'm having chats about different books with friends and family and we're talking about great reads and what we're reading now are books that we keep revisiting lots of my female friends will bring a portrait of an artist or Ulysses but for some reason Finnegan's Wake seems to have shot past a lot of women that I know and whether they don't emotionally engage with it they don't relate to it in some way whether they can dive richly into some other of Joyce's fantastic works. Why do you think Finnegan's Wake appeals more to men than women? Or do you think that's a gross generalisation? I honestly don't know if that's the case or not, but I think Joyce certainly wouldn't have wanted that to be the case. Because if you think, for instance, probably his favourite chapter of the whole book is the Anne Olivia chapter towards the end of the first part of Finnegan's Wake. And that's the story that's told not by, but but more about the mother of the family. There's a family at at the centre of Finnegan's Wake and the mother, her name is Anne-Olivia Plurabelle. And this is a story that's just, it's about two women gossiping about Anne-Olivia. So women feature certainly in Finnegan's Wake, but perhaps they feature in a way that's probably similar to Ulysses in the sense that, you know, Molly Bloom doesn't really feature prominently until the final chapter. But in many ways, that's probably the most fascinating chapter. But I mean, obviously that's based on, you know, preference. But, you know, in many ways it is the most groundbreaking chapter of Ulysses, in my opinion. And so there is plenty to enjoy. I mean, and I think there are very interesting female characters in both Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. So I just think if it is the case that men feel more comfortable reading it, well, I, I don't know how to explain that, but I guess the only thing I could say is that I, I, I would have thought that everyone feels the same. You know, that everyone feels that it's just, there's not much there for, for them when they read it, whether they're male or female. was artist and philosopher Thomas McNally unpacking the layers of understanding in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Thomas's ambitious and quirky book of illustrations, The Aunt and the Grace Hopper, will be published by Dublin's Lilliput Press this coming June. And it promises to be quite a unique read. Okay, let's now dive into a radically different space, to the dystopian murky underworld of Sheba City, to Henry Dorset Case, Molly Millions and The Matrix. Yes, William Gibson's classic